Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. A couple of years ago, when I first showed up to Boston, I was looking for a job. I wanted to get involved in politics, in local politics, and so I ended up getting a job on a Cambridge City Council campaign. And one of the things that was impressed upon me uh, through that experience was the degree to which, uh, to which communities, particularly here in this part of the country, engage in local issues uh, and care about their communities. And one of the reasons that I got that impression was because the gentleman I was working for, Nadine Mazin, is a particular brand of politician. He's been on the Cambridge City Council for two terms. I helped him run for his second one. And after this election, he's going to be stepping down from the Cambridge City Council because of a self-imposed term limit. Now, his background is unique for a politician. He graduated MIT as a mechanical engineer and then went on to own two tech-oriented businesses in the Cambridge area, one of which is an animation studio and the other of which is a 3D makerspace, which he'll explain further in the episode. Um, But this experience working for him really did make an impression upon me and I wanted to get back in touch with him and have a conversation about his philosophy and worldview, his ideas about organizing, and then some specific issues including housing in Cambridge, education, uh, the American economy and how it's going to remain competitive uh, over the coming decades. So we get into all of those issues, Um, we use his biography as a launching point and we continually return to it throughout the episode. It's a very wide-ranging discussion and I wanted to thank Nadine for taking the time to have this discussion with me. We hope you enjoyed the talk. So you're planning to, in accordance with your you know, self-imposed term limits, you're planning to leave the city council right now. So the reason I wanted to do this interview is because it's a good time to go back and look at how a person like you got involved in politics, became active, specifically not just in politics generally, but in local politics and community issues. And so Real quick, before Nadim Mazin, the politician, before Nadim Mazin, the entrepreneur, can you take us back to, you know, who Nadim Mazin was? Were you just an ultra nerd who who had some sort of inclination towards social justice? Where did that come from? What in your background or, or your upbringing gave you that inclination towards social justice? Wow. Yeah. Great. Well, you'll forgive me if I don't talk about myself in the third person, but I, 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 um, yeah, I was a super nerd, a super nerd. I went to MIT, uh, for mechanical and biological engineering. And sometimes I got into little tinkering projects, but for the most part, I got into social projects and I Mm -hmm. wanted to learn about international development and designing with and not for, and, um, you know, lower tech, high impact solutions and realizing that, wow, like, we haven't even implemented the low-tech solutions, the like low-cost solutions, the medicinal or um, you know human health solutions in many places. The you know, educational and pedagogical insights haven't been applied. We're still doing stuff that doesn't okay. work, right? Um, and the more I looked into every issue in society, the more I was like, oh my God, we're we're this weird moment in history where we're super far ahead in like computers and space flight and and manufacturing but we're really behind in governance and sharing and mutual support and collectivism and politics so mm-hmm. you know i i carry that theory of humanity around with me and i say okay we're we're ahead but we're behind we're you know we're good people but we're not necessarily doing good at the high level that we espouse as a as a global community or as an american community so but you know the thing is like in college at MIT, it's not exactly known for its humanities. It's not known for social sciences. It's not known known as like a specific hotbed of political activism. 
Um, mm. You know, it's known for for being techie, which is obviously what it excels at. But what influences in college, or what was going on in college, or is your experience opposite of that in terms of being? Yeah, you know, I would say I'd say I was surprised at the extent to which any. I don't want to say elite institution, but yeah. any institution that's perceived to be elite from the outside has a lot of overachievers who are really, really, really focused on like success and excellence. They right. got there, at, like you're saying, right? Yeah. And I think you're talking about the nerdiness or the engineering or something, yeah. but what yeah. I was, was shocked and um, concerned by, frankly... Uh, is the number of people going into finance, the number of people who like very nakedly had the ambition to take, for example, the most classes possible. Right. But I didn't understand what people's motivations were until I realized that for like, you know, maybe a quarter of my class or half of my class, the motivation yeah. was, I want to be successful. I got here because I'm successful. I want to continue <laughs> to be successful. And success meant a specific thing, like a, like a yeah. certain grade or a dollar value yeah. or a salary or a job course. Mm -hmm. And for other people, they, they got there because they loved solving problems, and I'm that type of person. And, and some people wanted to solve like the most important or most complex or most interesting or most um, celebrated uh, computer science problems or engineering problems. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, a small but persistent and indefatigable group of people at MIT who are just obsessed with social problems. Okay. They're obsessed with the social problems of how you know dorm life exists at MIT. It's a problem right now. Like a dorm's getting shut down, the administration versus the students versus the alumni, right. and people care. They care about the, the life at MIT. And there's you know Amy Smith. It was was one of my mentors at MIT, and through her I learned about international development. And I realized wow, there's people. She won a MacArthur Genius Grant of like almost a million dollars, and she gave it to the school to demonstrate to the school that this is a type of course, uh, you know, the development course, the, the design lab, the design thinking for human benefit, the overseas work, the domestic work, that, that this course of study could be something that impacts future generation of learners. And that level of altruism was right there in the same mix of people solving, you know, problems that get them into Wired magazine. And here she is giving away money, staying humble in order to help people um, and she's almost, I don't want to say she fought the administration, but she certainly wasn't given a million dollars by MIT. Right. She was yeah. given MIT, yeah. you know, a million dollars yeah. by the MacArthur folks, and then MIT noticed, and then outside grantors noticed, and then so many other things fell into place. But that same altruism and that same spirit is present at MIT, and I would argue it's present in every group, every social group, right. every university. It's just not the thing that's celebrated. And when you turn people on to that, especially in our generation, millennials can see what's going on, right? right. My, my generation is probably <laughs> loosely in the same generation yeah, yeah, that yeah. you are. Um, you know, we're probably 10, 15 years apart, but we're at either ends of a spectrum of, of human beings who can look around them and say, no, nope, it's not working. The social contract is totally breaking down. When you say that I'm going to make, you know, taxes lower for business and that's going to help the middle class, we know that that's not how that works. Right. We can feel it. Yeah. We can go into the job market and look around and say, nope, something's wrong here. There's a, there's a missing middle class, and you have to either scrape to get into the upper middle class or the upper right. class, or you're going to fall into the situation where you can't own, you can't rent, barely can rent in an yeah. urban environment. Um, you can't get ahead. You can't help your parents. You can't you know, go back to school. You're crippled with debt. All these things that the average person is facing that shows them that, that the social contract isn't working. And so now you put that person next to an Amy Smith 
or you put that person next to a political situation at City Hall that doesn't seem to be functional, right. and they actually get really excited about getting involved. MIT Dems are, are starting back up. Um, you know, MIT has been um, really instrumental in talking about the local campaign finance problem where special interests control a lot of local and state politics as well as obviously federal yeah. politics. Yeah, absolutely. Right, we haven't drained the swamp. So I'm just saying, not only have I been interested, but it was very natural for me and for others like me to become interested yeah. because we're problem solvers looking around at an enormous social problem. Yeah. You talked about international development, low-tech solutions. Um, what what piqued your interest there? Like, what, what problems were you trying to solve when you graduated? I know you eventually became an entrepreneur, I don't know how long after, but what problems were you trying to solve either locally or was your first impetus to, to look internationally and then, and then discover that local issues were more solvable? I was motivated, certainly they're both more solvable, yeah. right? I, I, you know, I believe in an Islamic ethic that says if a certain collective obligation isn't being met, we each have to meet it. I okay. say that when I, when I talk about, you know, religion. I, I think people have a lot of false impressions about Islam, and I say, well, I'm motivated by the service aspect. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and the religion also says kind of in, in some ways, uh, do good where you, are pl- where you are placed. So it's like, okay, we're here locally, we can make an impact locally, and you don't have to go halfway around the world. And now a lot of um, aid um, discussions say, kind of say the same thing. We're not going to go and fly 12 people around the world to do work that the people locally there are doing right. and the people locally here should be doing yes. let's think very carefully about how we deploy people and how mm-hmm. we deploy resources especially given the climate problem but if you want to ask what motivated me um, let me give you something that I got on the first day it's at newyorktimes.com in like a really old version of newyorktimes.com <laughs> 1998 I was, I was, it was old when I read it Okay. okay so yeah. this is from 1998 yeah. And Amy Smith sat us down and said, you know, here's some facts on income and GDP and who has what. And just at the end of the preamble, it says here, um, this year the report takes its first look at what people have from, some to- uh, from simple toilets to family cars and what proportion of the world's good and services are con- uh, goods and services are consumed comparatively by the rich and by the poor. The pie, the GDP, is huge. The world's consumption bill is $24 trillion a year, but some servings are very small indeed. And then it goes through and it just talks comparatively about who has what. It says the haves, the richest fifth of the world's people, consume 86% of all goods and services, while the poorest fifth consume just 1.3%. Indeed, the richest fifth consume 45% of all meat and fish, 58% of all energy, 58% of all energy, 84% of all paper, etc. So, you know, this list goes on to you. The ultra-rich, the three richest people in the world, have assets that exceed the combined gross domestic product of the 48 least developed countries. I mean, it just goes on. It, the the super-rich, the world's 225 richest individuals, of whom 60 are Americans, ha, with total assets of $311 billion, have a combined wealth of over a trillion dollars, equal to the annual income of the poorest 48%, 47% of the entire world's population. It goes on and on and on. Cosmetics, the have-nots, meat, the future, smoke wristwatches, telephone lines, right? right. So, and so you're learning about how people are earning a dollar a day, and the facts themselves are really stark and really important, mm-hmm. right? And, and these facts have all gotten worse. Everything that you could possibly say about 1998 or 2006 when I right. heard these facts is now worse today, yeah. despite the fact that a huge chunk of humanity is, is working against them, against the, the, the deterioration of the social contract. So... Right. Um, 
I, you know, I was motivated by things like that, but I, I think that something else is true. When people see how bad it is and they're given an opportunity to dedicate themselves to how bad it is domestically and internationally, they really take that opportunity very seriously. People, people want to do good, and if you expose people to that type of thing young enough, they, they really get going. I think you see the starkest inequality overseas, mm-hmm. but we're beginning, in the, especially in the last 10 years, to see like dictatorship-level inequality, a Gini coefficient that shows the difference right. between the rich and the poor, yeah. that would only be seen in a kleptocracy or an oligarchy or just a, a system that's totally messed up. We're beginning to see that in major metropolitan areas in the United States. We're beginning right. to see that in rural areas in the United States. Well, well, in the divide. and I think that motivates motivates people to move from, especially people like me, what they were seeing as a developing world global problem to a this is actually happening not just at the federal level but also at the local level in my backyard. Right, right, and I think that's something we probably see, it, like in terms of an ur- rural urban divide, we see in Massachusetts specifically in a very intense fashion because everything descends upon Boston here, and then as you go out west into the state. Um, there's just a really stark divide in, in the way things yeah, yeah. The way things are cropping up. Yeah, but I, I'd say that that divide is almost artificial. I think really? there is a story about people living in cities mm-hmm. that they are doing mm-hmm. better than they are. You know, I saw a tweet right. the other day about the ima- imaginary successful average American. Okay. Right? There's yeah. this imaginary successful average American. And really when you talk to people, it's hard to find someone who got the money together for that mortgage in Boston, or right. San Francisco, or New right. York, or even Austin, Texas, or Washington, D.C., and the number of cities is growing. Mm-hmm. And so now, the the divide is weird, because you could actually go to a rural area where someone who's earning $22,000 a year might be able to buy a studio or a two-bedroom. <laughs> yeah, but right? the prices, prices here are just are out of control and so you have people who are not accumulating wealth who are not saving for their retirement who are not building local infrastructure who are not supporting local business Mm -hmm. in the city Mm -hmm. and in a rural environment and and you've got a situation where people on on political factions are attacking each other Mm -hmm. because they imagine that the other side is messing up the system you know who's messing up the system lobbyists are messing up the system and those guys are definitely wealthy Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, when you say there's a stark divide, we need jobs in the city. We need jobs in a rural environment. We need pipelines for jobs. We need manufacturing jobs. But more importantly, we actually need a conversation about how few jobs there are that will be competitive with China 20 years from now. I think it was 2012 you made a documentary mm-hmm. where you went through the heart of the country. And it's called, it was called Silicon Prairie, and you talked about the, the tech economy. Is that tech economy on Main Street, not just in Silicon Valley or not just in the, in the tech corridor in Boston, but, but in the heart of America, is that the future of the economy that's going um, to solve this problem? Or, you know, not everyone exa- is, is a techie person or is, is going to be involved in that economy. What jobs are on the side of that economy or related to that economy that can be the future of an American economy? That's a great question. Um, we did uh, make make a documentary in 2012 with Reddit um, and their CEO and, and um, uh, founder um, Alexis Ohanian and, and a few other people. Their executive director Eric Martin, CTA Consumer Technology Association. We drove from Denver, Colorado to Danville, Kentucky, and we looked at entrepreneurship and in, in particular internet entrepreneurship and startup entrepreneurship in unusual places. And those businesses are still thriving. Right, you can still have an internet startup in Iowa City or Kansas or uh, Des Moines. Um, And you can look at actually the interface between the local politics and the desire 
to take people's, you know, take your hands off internet regulation, for example. There's a lot of regulations that are great. Um, take your hands off of bad internet regulation and put your hands on net neutrality, for example, was a big theme throughout the last five years of that work. Um, the, the fact is that as long as we are preserving net neutrality, which it doesn't look like we are, by the way, mm-hmm. um, and as long as um, we are investing in pipelines out of high schools and vocational schools into uh, passion-based jobs, jobs that you can get excited about, jobs where you're solving problems, jobs, jobs where you're making digital products and, and other types of products, then we can you know, retain some type of primacy as long as I think uh, America is widely respected as having some of the, the best universities. As long as those universities remain close to passion building and skill building and, and problem solving, then we'll be good. I think the issue that many are seeing in, in the American um, educational ecosystem is, is that, you know, for all, from our vocational high schools or lack thereof up to our community colleges all the way on through four-year institutions, the degree is beginning to become a business. In fact, the degree is well into being a business. Right. And you can go to a great university in Boston, and I've taught at some of the, the, what I would say, the best universities in Boston. As a teacher, as an instructor at School of the Museum of Fine Arts, I was faculty, and I have seen on the inside how folks have to make logistical, financial, um, even real estate decisions that are completely counterethical to the best um, needs of the of the university and of the student. Um, I remember seeing the internal politics uh, where we're not even talking about pedagogy and students anymore. Um, we're talking about, you know, we're, frankly, we're talking about crazy things. We're talking about paying people who would give their time and in many cases probably give their lives for their student. They care so much about the student journey. Yeah. These people are being paid $3,000 per class and teaching three classes per semester. There are people earning $18,000 on the job who are bartending at night, who are um, working three jobs just for the privilege to be able to teach, to kill themselves teaching. And then we have students who aren't given enough time to, uh, you know, um, kind of bask in and develop a personal relationship with the content they're learning. They're just being jammed through an ever-increasing and test-driven um, version of, of the passion-based curriculum they would have received 40 years ago. Let, let me ask the the mid-century mid-20th century american economy that everyone laments right yeah. that, that is obviously a big theme in last year's election yeah. um, one element of that was that the middle class in order to be middle class uh, didn't need necessarily an education their father grandfather worked in the union they worked in the factory um, they joined the union right out of high school and then started working their way up is there a, a modern analog to, to someone who wants to take that sort of path, who doesn't necessarily want the education or feel like they need the education in order to succeed in the American economy? Or is edu- education totally ins- indispensable to a middle-class life uh, in, in so the American this economy? This is a good question. You know, you had asked earlier what types of politics we, we had seen. So I, I want to f- finish that section up by saying it's bad in there. Right. If, you're, if you're a student you haven't seen it, Talk to your teachers. If you're a teacher and you haven't seen it, tell me where you teach. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, everyone thinks it's bad out there, and no one is having a conversation on the collapse of the value of the American educational experience from right. high school all the way up to college. Yeah, I, I just want to note, like, I, I'm not trying to, to divert from the subject of no, education itself. That's fine. But what I'm trying to say is, is that 
you know, we can't say, all right, Harvard and MIT lift the load for the country. It's, it's yes, they need to, to be more inclusive and, and bring people from all corners of society, but it's a university-wide educational system. Yeah. It's a systematic oh, I want to answer that question, too. Yeah, yeah. No, no I, I, that, yours is the more important question. Yeah. I'm just saying that with the resources we have today, if you didn't even ask that question, there's also a question about let's make the most about what we have. Right. Right. Um, but, but asking that question, I'm glad we're getting into education. Um, when you say that someone didn't necessarily have to have an education, there's something that, that happened. I don't want to say it was a simpler society. There were different types of complexities. Right. But certainly you didn't have to know a suite of you know, 27 different software products in order to be basically proficient in communications, right? Yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That so really that, that was less complex. But, but the main thing is that you would learn on the job. Are you going to be a waiter or a waitress? You're going to learn it on the job. You're going to do it well. It's not just going to teach you those skills. It's also going to teach you discipline. And there was a certain type of relationship between the employer and the employee where it wasn't just training. In many cases, it was also mentorship. And you hear about, in that generation, people who went in to do the dirty jobs, people who went in to do the, um, the government jobs, people who went in to do the service jobs. And all these people were learning something. Many of these people were starting businesses of those, their own that became very successful, grew, employed other people, and, and carried on the tradition of both teaching and learning. You hear about DHL starting and expanding all over Asia overnight. I do, you watch. You do, I watch. Great training and allowed them to train a vast network of highly disciplined couriers that, that spread everywhere. And that came out of a certain American experience that that founder had had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so these, these opportunities existed for anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, do you have, you have uh, uh, a good heart and you want to make a, a, a good dollar? There was someone willing to employ you, and, and if you were willing to work hard, you were probably able not just to excel in that business without education, but you had an education on the job that gave you the opportunity to earn something for your family and maybe go on to go into business for yourself. Mm-hmm. That is not true about capitalism today. When you go into the workforce, we have trained people to be the best, but also somehow least um, analytical worker in generations. We have trained people to just kind of do some basic job role that you have to be overqualified in many ways to do if you're coming out at 22 from a, a standard four-year or at 20 from a standard two-year degree. Mm-hmm. Now you're overqualified for the job you can get. You're underqualified for the job you want. Neither job is really going to train you a whole lot, right? Mm-hmm. Am yeah. I correct about that? Yeah. And, uh, and now you're going to go into a job economy where... Um, you know, it feels to a lot of people like you're a cog in the machine. And I think the reason it feels that way, I'm not trying to, to sound all dystopian, but I think that the reason it feels like that is that we have ruined the best of capitalism. In the best of capitalism, there's low barriers to entry, there's high levels of competition. And when you go into a firm where you see something that's not quite right, you can start up a competing firm. Well, that's not true anymore. You can't just go into a a garage mechanic and then put up a competing garage mechanic or go into a financial services company and then start up a competing financial services company. There are a few very tightly held um, uh, companies that hold a lot of the proprietary information, a huge amount of wealth, and the barriers to entry are very high because those folks will either require you, which is great for you, Mm -hmm. maybe not great for the economy and for competition, or they will crush you. 
Yes. And they will say so, right? You have Apple going around to people and saying, we'll buy you for this amount, but if not, we're going to compete with you. Is that really what you want? Mm -hmm. And this is bad for the economy, but it's also bad for a sort of implicit educational system that existed. People are floating around the job market and they are not bubbling up. And we're probably also not bubbling up the best and brightest into positions where they can exercise their true abilities, which is bad for everyone coming through and seeking employment and seeking um, an optimal job role in their in their lives coming out of our educational system. Right. So hey, let me clarify just to see if I'm, I'm picking up on, on what you're saying is that the, the um, sort of domination of the economy by large corporate firms uh, and, and, you know, basically chains, um, you know, retail stores have been basically wiped out, mom and pop shops don't exist anymore. You're saying that the old economy allowed for a sort of person-to-person -person training, on-the-job training, because people were floating around and because businesses had the incentive and now because they're large corporations they don't have the incentive I mean what I don't want to make it sound I don't want to yeah. make it sound too romantic but yeah. I basically want to say we were at a unique crossroads let's yeah. say post-world war ii you got a situation where there's a lot of people coming back with discipline coming back with job skills obviously coming back with trauma yeah. coming back with uh health liabilities yeah. you had a country that was willing to take care of its veterans in many ways right Right, put them yeah. to send them to school, put them to work, uh, pay their medical bills, uh, do all kinds of stuff, and and you had a country, uh, irrespective of that, that was very dynamic, coming mm -hmm. out with manufacturing and investing in education. Look at the country right now. We are not investing in education. We have not done right by by veterans, sending them into the workforce or into the economy in a productive way, or at least as productive as we should. Yeah, we have not dealt with our healthcare liabilities for them or for anyone else. Mm -hmm. We have people who are spending an enormous amount of their income on housing, sending it into, as we know, a type of saving by speculators and investors that does not come immediately back into the economy the same way it would if we were investing. And, and stimulating, as we call it, the economy through investments in the middle class. Right. We are continuing to lower taxes on corporations and the very wealthy when the opposite was true in the most dynamic periods in this country's history. So I'm, say, I'm not just saying it was a time where people could go out and find passion and find mentorship. I'm saying it was a perfect storm of factors that make someone want to be successful. And then once they want to be successful, they have the, the factors at play that will allow them to be successful. And I'm saying right now, people have an insane drive. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the technology or the pace of our urban, mostly urban American society, whether it is the pace of commerce or, or if it is the pace of learning or information, but we have people who are very driven and at unprecedented rates of being productive. You can measure these things, productive compared to where we were in the past. And yet it is still very hard to quote unquote get ahead. And that's because all the factors that one would invest in if they wanted a successful economy and a successful middle class have gone underinvested for the last literally 30 years right. where we have now stagnant real wages. Um, and yes, to answer your question, we're in a situation where, um, where folks go into the workforce and aren't actually able to engage in the learning and probably in school haven't had the learning that they would have had 40, 30, 40 years ago. My, my curiosity with the, the notion of a more productive workforce is that generally it's understood that income should track with the productivity of labor and that's not been the case. Yeah, where is that understood? Where are you where, where are you getting that? Where sh where is it said that income should track with productivity because that hasn't been true for a very long time. No, no, I'm saying it ought to. It ought to, but it has You're saying people true. feel that morally. 
morally that well that that as the as the productivity of a labor force increases that the the share of the pie that they're um, that they're taking in at least remains the same and it's not been the case yeah. over the past 30 years yeah um, and so you know to go back to that first point in this discussion in this education economics discussion is you know where where should we head in order to reestablish that connection because we've obviously lost it and we've obviously chosen at least recently uh, a path that says we can recreate the old economy which is just not true what is the what is that economy that yeah. that we're looking towards that we're try, that we should be pushing towards okay um, and 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 again i want to stress the point how does one enter that economy without having to have a master's degree you right. know, without without right. having to have the highest levels of educational attainment right um, we haven't as a government uh, or as a society invested in education at any level for years and we put more money in but we haven't invested in an honest conversation about what we're getting and it's very painful for a, a parent with students in sixth grade math to say we're gonna rip it out and the next two years are gonna be unknown and we're just gonna do it a different way but that's what America needs. It needs to rip off the band-aid of standardized high-stakes testing, of uh, the social and economic inequity that is at play in our schools and how they're funded. Um, the, it needs to rip off the fake conversation between charter schools and public schools. Tra- publics need to learn from charters in many ways, and, and politi- political squabbles prevent that. And charters need to stop being privatized. We need to find a way to actually engage unions in improving our educational system. So, so we can invest in what we have. If we really cared, we could do that. And we have the resource. We spend a phenomenal amount of money on education mm-hmm. as a percentage of local tax revenue. Then there's many other things we could do. We could actually invest in a workforce that, that does go to work with high-tech skills. Right? We, we have a biotechnology jobs program in Cambridge that sends 20 people into biotechnology jobs because that's the jobs we have down the street. And if, if you can mint people who are ready for that job, and that's not, I'm not talking about a master's degree. I'm yeah. talking about a summer program or a, in some cases a one or a two-year program, but that's part-time or you're paid for it. Mm-hmm. We've got Akamai down the street training people, not for the software development jobs, but for the quality control jobs that sit below um, those software jobs on the pay scale. Still great jobs with great benefits, and now you can get that job coming off of maybe the low end of a two- or a four-year degree in the humanities instead of a high end uh, of a four-year or a six-year degree in software development. So we can train people into the jobs that we want to see them in, but we actually have to do that. And those programs don't exist. Right, we're in Cambridge, the center of innovation in the world, and there's two programs, or there's four programs, or there's six programs, but they're not 600 programs. Right. And so, but where do those where do those programs come from? Like, who who funds that? Is the is the federal government lacking in, in yes. funding local? The community? federal government's not even having the conversation. The local and state governments aren't even having the conversation. Cambridge City could be doing more. You right. know, the right. state could certainly be doing more. We talk about our gateway cities. We're not even having the conversation about how to make a proper training program, a proper makerspace, or a proper school. Yeah. So we want to we want to. Politicians are phenomenal at yeah. this. We want to point at the problem and say, "I care about this issue. Aren't things bad?" And then you actually need someone who's experienced in pro- solving problems, generally, yeah. or experienced in solving that problem specifically, to come in and solve the problem. I would prefer that the politician is one of those two people, himself right. or herself. 
right. rather than just hiring a consultant and paying a bunch of money to not get a solution you could actually have someone who solved this problem before right. and that's the that's the matter you came to at the beginning which is shouldn't people from unusual walks of life come in and actually solve these economic problems if someone has created this job program for the city or at Akamai shouldn't mm -hmm. that person be the only person qualified now to run for governor right. I, I think that is yeah. a political revolution that's beginning to happen before our eyes Right. Okay. So let's take that notion and say unconventional walks of life. You've yet to get into politics that you've graduated. Where were you in terms of your entrepreneurial life um, before you decided to run for the council? And, and during that life, before you conceived of actually running for, for the city council and getting involved in politics, what was your level of um, political activism and local engagement? Sure. So back to the past, um, I was coming out of school. I drove from England to China, actually, okay. in 2006. And I lived in China for a little bit. And I looked at their investment in real estate, looked at China's investment in manufacturing, really blown away. Um, and I've had the chance to go back to China uh, a couple times, and it's, it's really phenomenal um, what's going on there. It's scary um, in many ways, the, the unilateral and, and unified investment in, in some of these areas yeah. that we don't have. And, and many other countries, by the way. Um, not just not just China, um, and uh, I came back and I, I really started feeling um, the excitement around um, around small business and around making an impact in a tiny venue. So I started a a storefront makerspace, the world's only kind of walk-in retail storefront makerspace. People could walk in and say, hey, I need help with a 3D printing or a laser cutting project, <laughs> or they could say, you do it for me, and they would pay by the hour. And wow. That was a yeah. cool model. It was profitable for a while. We, we tried to expand and, and eventually realized we would need a huge amount of money to, uh, to expand nationwide, yeah. and, and we ended up, uh, um, well, we, we sold it to us. We were acquired by a school, and, and uh, though we didn't make... Uh, yeah. Uh, but load of money. We we did. Uh, I think keep the concept going on in, in that yeah. way. Uh, Just for the listeners, that's dangerous. Awesome. That was dangerous. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Central, Central Square. Square. It was yeah. in business for seven years. I started with Ali Muhammad, my friend from MIT, and we actually uh, we directed a, um, a viral video for Grammy award-winning band OK Go, and that's what gave us the lasers. We, oh wow! We, yeah, we were able to line up the sponsorship <laughs> from Samsung, the lasers from OK Go, and the music video and the release, and then we kept the lasers and started the business. And that's yeah. that's how two guys with no money in their pockets started a business with a hundred, <laughs> two hundred thousand dollars in laser cutters yeah. and three D printers. Yeah. Um, uh, because we had them left over from the production, and at the same time, I started Nimblebot, is which is a. Uh, um, uh, kind of an advertising agency for the resistance is what I call it now, uh, but it's always been that. We've always worked yeah. with Fight for the Future and uh, policy uh, leaders and policy makers to tell the, the oft um, kind of um, unglamorous stories or complex stories of technology or of economy or of policy. And uh, we make them glamorous and, and we've been successful in animating those and marketing right. those issues, uh, including the, the movie Silicon Prairie that you talked about earlier. Right. Was uh was Nimblebot the company that was hired to do the video, and that's how you got the lasers, and then started the next one? Or how oh, did, it's how unclear did okay? to me. It's unclear to me how the uh, how the company structures were, broke down at that time. I think both companies started after the uh, music video. Oh, but, after the video. But I, I, you know, I literally I just called OK Go on the phone, and when we, oh, pitched, really? we pitched we pitched this idea. I, I I'm also unclear on who came up with the concept. I think um, Ali Why says okay, go too. <laughs> Ali says he came up with the toast concept with three thousand pieces of stop motion toast. I came up with a similar stop motion concept, but I was I was making the call and introducing people to one another yeah. and it was okay go because they had just reached out they hadn't yet done their um, Rube, Rube Goldberg device uh, video which is now so famous 
And they were looking for people to direct that, and they were asking a bunch of us at Media Lab, would you like to come out west and direct this? And I said, no, I'm going to... You, you were at MIT. I was Lab. back at MIT doing some, some um, stuff at the Media Lab, and I said, no, I'm not going right. to upend my life, but I will direct this other video that just occurred to <laughs> us, you know, if you have if you have space for two videos at twice the price type of thing. Yeah. Um, anyway, we did that. We started businesses, um, came back into Central Square, um, and kind of started getting involved in local life, and that's when I started going to city council meetings and... and and meeting local clients and I, I really started I was startled when I went to local meetings and I thought oh Cambridge has got it covered and I talk to voters now and they're like oh Cambridge has got it covered yeah, and yeah. everyone's got Cambridge has got it covered <laughs> and it's now like, you're, you're, you're inside yeah and you realize you. no I mean it's not as progressive as it should be it's not as transparent as it should be it's not as hardworking as it should be I mean there's a lot of basic things you, you pay someone $80,000 a year to uh, to be a city councilor you think that's that's pretty good money to work full-time. Now, there's no full-time requirement. There's no requirement to make sure that we're hearing diverse parts of the community and everyone has a seat at the table. There's no sense that we're winning the social equity discussion as people get displaced and as Cambridge's traditional diversity is... is um, uh, upended. Right. So, yeah, so that was that was that was how we got started into it. And I, I would I'll just say one more thing. I don't think I could have won an election without being an entrepreneur. I think the election, really? the uh, the idea of starting a campaign and winning an election um, was so close to winding up a startup business and training people you trust and establishing metrics and measuring those things and um, and then also establishing real relationships with your in this case you could say your client or your customer but your your voters and understanding exactly what their needs are right. and then satisfying those needs not just talking about them the way most politicians were but actually satisfying those needs in a way that would allow people to um, to have confidence in government again and to want to participate. We got people who hadn't been participating in ages out, and that's yeah. traditionally very difficult. That's true. So so I actually want to zone in on, yeah. so I worked for you in 2015, um, but, but at that point you were a little more well-established, had the ground under your feet in the political world. Um, you know the comparison you make between between a, a customer and a constituent, you know, might in other places seem unsavory. But but you had just a, a sort of innate sense of connecting to people in that way. And when you needed to start in 2013, when you said I'm going to run for the city council, um, what was your strategy? How did you develop a strategy to to transfer the skills of business that you had you know acquired through just pretty much just straight practice and yeah. and, and, and tenaciousness, and how did you transfer that over to politics? Well, let's talk about the practice in, in, in one second, but I do want to comment on what you said that some people would would see, <laughs> no. no, I, I think yeah. it's important, would see the, the, the um, association of, of voters or, or residents or citizens as, um, although those three doors are not quite interchangeable, as as customers to be unsavory, and I just want to be clear, we are missing that from politics. Like, I think it's really, really? important okay. to do that. And I don't mean to treat people in a casual way as if, like, you just take a customer and uh, give them what they want and send them on their way. And hopefully, you know, hopefully they had a C-minus experience, right, at least. No, I'm saying, like, it's about customer delight. It's about the companies that do an A-plus job every time. It's about the customers that are, uh, the companies that are saying, how can we do better by our customers? How can we make our customers so loyal and so excited by the process that they're a part of the family. You is, know? That, is that a unique ethic? Not a unique ethic, but a particularly prominent trait of 
tech industry? Uh, um, maybe some in the tech industry. Certainly my father, who teaches negotiations and organizational behavior at Suffolk, drilled this into me. I was taking graduate student, uh, I was just taking classes, uh, graduate classes as a middle schooler and again as a high schooler in the university, and my dad made me do all the homework with the grad students. I was writing these 40, 50-page papers on win-win negotiations and on, yeah. on organizational behavior and systems <laughs> oh thinking God. and stuff, you know, really young, and I, you know, I, I don't think there's anything uh, like a genius, but I, I always looked at people who had a genius for things and admired their ability to, um, to just know something. I always had to work really hard to get even sea level understanding of something and I think right. by working hard you know um, with my dad on some of these things I got hopefully B level or better understanding and and more importantly ability to implement some of these um, um, kind of hallmarks of a better and more humane system right. and and when you do a better and more humane job and when you when you really treat people like people or at least I hope you treat people like people who are your constituents and who have an interest in civic improvement and civic engagement mm-hmm. I think you get something out of out of the society right. that has been missing you, you get something dynamic and something self-starting yeah I've been able to wind up different affinity groups and different organizations and different um, trainees and you leave them behind you come back in two years and they've got a thousand people behind them that's not you that's something that's been missing in our communities all across the board on almost every issue right so so you have you know a very unique approach to politics is kind of well known in the area and in Cambridge and became well more known once you became a city councilor Um, but you know where you know so this we're establishing that the style came from the notion of business treating the constituent like a customer, particularly like a customer that, that you want to make a part of the family. I'm saying that's one way to think about it. That's right? one way I don't, to think I don't about want it. I don't want yeah. it to be like, this is the way you should think about constituents. Yeah. I'm saying if, if you believe in the idea of customer delight, this yeah. is a great way to think about what has been missing from the customer experience. If you want to think about the, yeah. the constituent as a family member, yeah. then there's another thing that you might learn is missing from the experience, and all of these things blend together to create a better relationship between politicians and, and the city. Right, but this the, like reconceptualizing that relationship is a part of a lot of different campaigns and politicians in, in a lot of different ways you know the, this sort of sincerity or authenticity notion that we find in in like the one of the reasons people are attracted to Bernie Sanders is because they they perceive authenticity one of the people reasons that people were attracted to the Obama campaign is because they perceive this notion of, of like reestablishing that relationship in a way that's much more personal mm-hmm. what doesn't always transfer in politics is once the office holders in office uh, once the politicians in office um, that that relationship doesn't transfer all the time, and I know that you've tried to. Why do you main- think that is? Why do I think that yeah, is? Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. No, yeah, I think I think it's because um, not not for lack of trying or for lack of interest. Um, I think that uh, people can get overwhelmed by the problems that they have to solve. They get very um, insulated within a within a political class and within a community of of people who all came from where they came from, and they don't push themselves enough to get back outside that bubble. Which leads to my question, yeah. you seem to, to, to have to a certain extent maintained your connection to the community through sort of more like radical or unconventional means, you know, we were talking earlier before we recorded about, about the bus, um, <laughs> you know, which, which is, you know, basically a school bus you take out into the community to do events. Um, you promised to give one third of your after tax city council salary to hire community organizers. Um, you, you've made a concerted effort. You've been training people to run for office. Yeah, and training people to All run for the office through, through Jetpack, um, which, is, mm-hmm. uh, which we can talk about in a minute. But you know, how have you maintained that? And, and 
in what ways, you know, to be honest, in what ways do you think you've fallen short? Um, and yeah. have you fallen short? Yeah, so there's like three questions here. And, and I want to start with kind of what we started with in, in your question. And you were saying, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you were kind of saying, um, there is a, um, a situation where people kind of fall away from their campaign promises and obligations because it's complex work right. or something like that. Right, well, also, it, not just campaign promises. You know, we have this notion in America now of um, people running to establish a policy program. So my vote as a citizen, we think now, um, means that when you propose X, Y, and Z, you know, let's say uh, it's a healthcare plan, and you propose, um, you know, single payer, an individual mandate, or something, I'm paying, or sorry, I'm giving you my vote in order to establish a policy program. Mm-hmm. When, at least initially, I think if you go back to the founding, we're actually looking for people of good judgment and good character. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that politicians stand out that have that sort of are high on the, the authenticity index is because we're, we're realizing that a policy program in the process of compromising the process of politics isn't going to be implemented as we vote for it. Mm-hmm. But what is going to be the deciding factor in whether or not we get policies that, that we want is whether or not the person we elect has the character and has the judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't know. I don't know if I agree with you on everything you're saying here. I, okay. I want to dive into this and then let's go back to your other question. Yeah, for sure. Sorry. The first yeah. thing I want to say is is um, there's a reason there's a reason people are falling short and it, it underlays and undergirds all of this yeah I, I went to an awesome industry event yesterday that that one of my um, kind of like policymaker partners so the folks we, we helped tell their animated stories in, uh, invited me to and they said hey we're going to be in Boston we're sponsoring this event I came in and there's a banner for Lyft and a banner for all these tech companies and all these state legislators in the room and they're eating crab rolls and lobster rolls and the champagne is flowing. Being an elected official is about that. It's about that. It's about the industry events and the lobbyists and the being seen and the what can I say to dig at the guy who might run for my position while I have the podium and, and all of this stuff, all this stuff that's not legislating, it's not problem solving. And people think that the person who is marketing to them is marketing an authentic version of themselves. And I think politicians have gotten very, very good. I mean, I'm not naming names. I'm certainly not talking about specific colleagues. I'm just saying Americans have an intuition that something's going wrong and it's going wrong with politicians. But they think that their politician isn't the one to blame. Mm -hmm. And I think... It is this mistaken impression that you raise that we need to elect people of good character and that we our voters are good judges of good character and that then those people should be free to make good decisions because they have good character that has led us astray. This assumption, the whole thing, is messed up. The lobbyists have too much influence and it's not transparent to us. The financial disclosures are all messed up and it's difficult to make sense of them. You look at Cambridge financial disclosures and it seems like special interests are 10% of the election contributions, but they're actually like 30 to 35%. And as we do more data and, and find out what people's fields are and why they're giving, it turns out it might be much higher than 35%. That's all opaque to the voter. And the voter comes in, they vote for someone because that person is a professional at seeming authentic. And there's literally no social conversation about which person seemed authentic but wasn't mm-hmm. and which person actually was authentic. If we're 
trying to get what you're talking about, which is good character, and what I'm talking about, which is a huge amount of campaign promises that we can actually hold people to to understand fully their character and their accountability. Right. Um, if we had both of those things, we'd be in good shape. But I'm making the claim that we have neither of those things. Okay. In, in response, I might say that Yes, the office of citizen, you know, is is an important role within a democracy, but I don't think that the broader public is going to stay tuned on the sort of esoteric operations at all times of every governing body to which they elect politicians. I think that's probably why we have a problem. We need people to stay tuned, but but the thing is, and this will be a great relief to all, what what's your listenership? Uh, BU, BU community. Yeah. Okay, I'll... I'll 250 people listening, um, is that you only need five people per topic per city. You know, when I start a a group and I want them to to, um, take up their passion, they say, hey, we have a passion and we're not sure how to get started. We we care deeply about affordable housing or bicycle infrastructure or transportation as an equity, public transportation as an equity issue. Um, I say, well, first you're going to need three to five dependable people, and generally the five people in the room, you know, only two or three of them are capable of saying, I'm actually going to be totally dependable and totally locked in. And so getting to three to five is the hard part. But once you get to three to five, you can attend and cover all the meetings. You can, you get a real, real quick, you get a working Mm. feeling Mm. for who's saying a thing and doing that thing and who's saying a thing and doing something else. Right. You get a real immediate and sometimes very punishing look at who's good at marketing as a politician and who's good at problem solving as a politician. If five people can control that issue and if those five people can caucus with another five people, I'm not talking about people who are coming in and doing the work of lobbyists and subverting an issue and subverting the will of the people. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about five people coming in and broadcasting out to a larger audience. You don't have the time to go to these eight meetings, but each of us took a one-hour meeting this month and in one hour a month each, we five can rally you 1,000. Right. And you 1,000 can chatter to you, whatever the voting base yeah, yeah, is, yeah. 18,000. Yeah. And that is a very, very effective time-tested way of doing things. Right. And the, the the symptom that we have now, that the democracy seems like, well, people aren't going to get involved, as you just said. People right. aren't, you can't expect people to be that, holding people that accountable. Um, that symptom is a has a relationship with the actual ailment and the ailment is we don't have small groups of people who have been taught how to get involved despite the fact that we have more than enough people and more than enough interest to cover every issue well right so there's a disconnect now in the training stage which is why i'm investing in the training stage between the people who want to help huge numbers of us Mm -hmm. you me i can i can sense the altruism you walk into a room you talk to someone about housing and they're like i want to give you an hour a month for sure yeah and now yeah. they need to figure out how to generate the autonomy and the self-starting behavior and the accountability and all the other factors we talked about to create buzz and to create understanding and accountability within right. a political infrastructure or and ecosystem. And it also seems like a, a strategy of, of citizen teamwork, you know, where, yeah. where citizens hold each other in totally. some sense accountable for staying up on on public affairs. Totally. Well, it's some percentage of them, and you know who yeah. they are. You start getting in these Facebook clicks, and you're like, these are the our revolution people. These are the bike people. These are the health people. And then you start right. to see other people, and like, these are the people who say their business, but actually are just protecting their right. real estate investment. Right. And and so I want to ask, you know, the, the conception probably of most of our listeners of a lobbyist is, is one who, you know, kind of takes up residence in Washington, D.C. On, on K Street or something like that. And, mm-hmm. 
and is involved in some big organization. In what way does... Not does, a bad conception. That's, yeah, that no, that's, that's totally true. I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's not. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think people conceive as uh, of lobbyists as, as lobbying the city council. Oh, man, let me tell you some stories. No, 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 I know. And that, that's where I want to go is, in you know, for example, and, and if we can zone in perhaps on housing, um, because I know that's been one of sort of the central features of, of your time on the city council, um, you know, in what way have lobbyists... Shaped outcomes in Cambridge historically, mm-hmm. and what's the status right now of, of the influence of lobbyists on the city council? Well, first, let me make a general statement um, where we can say every city in America is under the influence of lobbyists. You want to talk about Cambridge? We're going to talk about real estate lobbyists. You want right. to talk about Virginia? You're going to talk about the public utilities and, and frankly, private utilities and other yeah. things. And you know, Americans, I think tend to think of certain areas in the country as pristine, but you go into a city council in the middle of what I would say is nowhere and someone else would say is home, and you have a situation where um, lobbyists have rolled into town, have Mm -hmm. figured out for their whatever, puppy mill, pet you know, company all the way to coal mine, you know, um, uh, strip mining operation or fracking operation, how they can get the most out of this city from a financial perspective. Why wouldn't they? You know, right. if every lobbyist that you hire for 150000 can get you, you know, a million dollars of tax breaks or $2 million of new business or $8 million of federal subsidies, then why wouldn't you just be hiring lobbyists to penetrate every single... Um, uh, opportunity that's in the local level anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why, I mean, that's why we as politicians understand that lobbyists are, are truly everywhere in every city. Right. Um, I don't yet understand why that's not in the popular understanding. Yeah. Right? We almost need like a uh, a Game of Thrones for ultra local level. We we have like Parks and Recreation, but we need like Parks and Recreation the like dark look at how a local <laughs> yeah. city yeah. has lobbyists everywhere, and it's like not that zany and not that funny. Did you did you sorry, but did you have this understanding you know before you decided no. to get involved in local politics? I didn't realize how bad it was. That's why I ran. I was like, oh my god, it's obvious what's happening. Yeah. You just go to a couple meetings, and it's very clear that. The there's something to hide. So, so these citizen teamwork <laughs> things you were talking about just before, like, yeah. you're saying if, if you can start that, you can start seeing actually the true influence of lobbyists yeah. in, in a city. Yeah. yeah, there's something to hide, right? People yeah. come out and they say, I don't want to talk about campaign finance because I'm afraid you're talking about corruption and we couldn't possibly be corrupt here, right? And so I don't want <laughs> yeah. the insinuation that any of us are corrupt. And it's like, listen, no one said the word corrupt. Why are you all worried about looking corrupt so much? <laughs> yeah. Why are you protesting so much? You yeah. know, and 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 frankly, why aren't you the first one to hold up the banner of it takes us too much time to raise money from the wrong people, and we right. don't have you know we don't have the yeah. closeness to the people. So, um, so let's let's talk about how how these lobbyists come come into focus in a city like Cambridge. Let's look at the recent Airbnb ordinance. We just passed it last night, Monday, August seventh, two thousand seventeen. And it's been a year-long process, and it came from an unexpected source. Councillor Kelly, who hasn't really been the high-tech counselor, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think a couple of us have, have been considered higher-tech policymakers, comes out and says you know, it's election year, it's an important issue. For whatever factor motivated him, he said, people are really uh, need clarity on this issue, and we don't want to be behind the eight ball. We don't want to be behind the issue the way we were on Uber or Lyft or something like that, and people are angry and it's too late and all this other stuff. So... Um, so he brings forward legislation, and it's a pretty good temperature check, like right out of the gate, of what people want, and it was pretty spot on. He had talked to people, he had designed with and not for, 
and it was saying stuff like, you know, you can't just have unlimited Airbnbs. You can have an un- you can have an Airbnb where you live. Maybe you can have one extra Airbnb if you're a homeowner with like a two-family house and you want both sides of the house, or mm-hmm. you're in a condominium complex and you have two condos next to each other, and one's an Airbnb and one's the one you live in. Right. There's all kinds of different things that he put the parameters on, but the idea is that these won't proliferate as a as a kind of a hotel workaround. You can't just buy you know rent eight apartments and all of a sudden you know, the family next to you can't find a place to rent and you're making unprecedented money on Airbnb and you're abusing, frankly, the system. So he came out with this and that was great. And and it was a year of just making sure all the tweaks and all the the parts of the legislation were good. Meanwhile, Airbnb appears to hire a lobbyist. We don't know because that lobbyist never really showed up more than once or twice. Mm. This lobbyist said absurd things about what we should have in the legislation. There should be no strictures and no rules and everyone wants it this way. And they tried to play the Uber game of our users want it to be totally, you yeah. know, almost unregulated, but they didn't back that up with any evidence. And they sent us these terrible postcards that were totally like machine written and had no person ability. And then they advanced competing rev- uh, they advanced competing um, legislation. And it seems like it came from Airbnb, but there's no direct connection between Airbnb and the legislation. And it seems like the lobbyists were helping because lobbyist employees were in the petition. But the person whose name was on the petition didn't even know it was filed in their name. People who had signed the petition didn't know what they were signing. Where did it where did it come from? Did seems like it came from the lobbyists. Seems right. like it came from Airbnb. Seems like it was very convenient. Seems like the fact that Airbnb was connected to the lobbyists and the lobbyists have their employees' signatures on the petition in large numbers yeah. was a pretty big giveaway, right? Yeah. But we can't say for sure this came from Airbnb. But it made them look inept. They put a bunch of money behind doing it. They sent out all, all their postcards and sent us some people to call us to say you should do this the wrong way, basically. And they tried to like greenwash or, or um, you know, grassroots organizing wash this, uh, this, <laughs> this project as if yeah. it was something that people wanted, and it was so transparently bad. This is it gives you an example of how lobbyists could operate. Imagine that going well. Right. That happens all the time. Right. There's a community process and people say it was well attended, or, you know, uh, the neighbors, we got eight neighbors who said they wanted this thing to be 800 feet high. Right. You know, this this luxury condominium. Did that succeed with Uber? Did Uber succeed in... Uber definitely succeeded in just totally pummeling everyone across the country. They just... Right. They, everyone, all the taxi cabs were upset. Um, people were within their rights to say Uber is operating yeah. illegally. Yeah. And a bunch of people just caved immediately and said, nope, not going to fight you on this one. Suffice it to say that you have a real estate developer come in and they're not messing around. Right. It's not their first rodeo. They're not Airbnb joking around with legislation that is obviously bad. They're coming in, they're ahead of our community development department. So we haven't even researched what we want to zone for an area. Right. We haven't even researched you know, what the people in that area want. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden a real estate developer comes in and says, hey, I overpaid for a parcel of land. It was $34 million. If you don't help me upzone this, do you really want it to fall into disrepair for 30 years? And the council says, well, it's a tough question. I feel like you're almost, you're almost forcing me to do this. Black, but, basically. But, but it just turns out that maybe this real estate developer also gave $1,000 in campaign contributions to every person on the council. Right, I, I don't take special interest donations, and so you know, so too don't a couple of my allies on council. Um, but uh, uh, maybe the lawyer also gave the maximum contribution. Maybe the maybe the lawyer's spouse or the real estate developer's spouse or friends 
And you can connect all these people when you do the research and you realize that 30% of Cambridge or higher, uh, uh, 30% campaign finance contributions come from a single industry and come in, in pretty close proximity to votes. Mm-hmm. The council can say, hey, 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 no one's ever accused me and no one could possibly accuse me of changing my vote because I get contributions this way. I just happen to get contributions. Well, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's like the work of, so Lawrence Lessig, who yes. um, lives in the city, he's a professor at Harvard. Yes, um, he's our good friend on this conversation. Yeah, yeah, did this, did this you know, uh, wrote this really remarkable book, uh, was Republic Lost, and in it he identifies... Um, the exchange economy versus the gift economy. You know, it's not, you know, maybe in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, you had political machines who had quid, uh, quid pro quo, you know, exchanges mm-hmm. with special interests. That's not the way it works anymore. But, but if, um, if there's this sort of reciprocal understanding where it's like, all right, next time you, your seat comes up for election, here, you know, you know you have a thousand bucks waiting for you. Yeah. It's not, hey, for this vote, here's a thousand bucks, but it's this, you know, sort of looming, um, looming presence out there on the horizon. Right, and, and, and it also gives money. people access, yeah. right? Right, right. And today's, we talked about charisma and we talked about marketing and accountability and authenticity. In today's um, marketplace, people want to have loyalty to something. And it turns out, I mean, these aren't terrible people I'm talking about here. These are people who are having trouble, as you said, just getting the, the work done or don't, right. aren't equal to the problem in many right. ways or, or don't come from the right walk of life to know how to solve the problem. And, and you know, Who's showing up three times a day or who's showing up every day or every week? It's the lobbyist. And who's yeah. showing up you know, once a month? It's the person who you said doesn't have the time to be holding their elected yeah. official accountable. Certainly not on a regular basis and with a persistent goal. Right. So, so even if we could make the claim that the money isn't relevant, certainly the access is super relevant. Yeah. But I actually think the money is relevant as well. Yeah. Um, uh, Ultimately, um, these I want to tell you the story of this real estate project uh, to, f- to finish up the lobbying item because I think it's extremely consequential for how real estate has, has kind of gone wrong in many ways. Um, we had a project come in called Mass in Maine. And in Mass in Maine, the real estate developer said, we, we paid $34 million for this plot of land and we needed you to upzone it so it can be a luxury tower. It needs mm-hmm. to go from six floors where it is now or we could build it to, to a maximum of six to uh, I don't know, something like... 18 floors, something like really a, a huge upzoning. And we should do this because it's transit-oriented development. So people, you know, that's a good practice. And we should have more density near our transit nodes. And that's yeah. good. And we talked to the community, which was not really true. Uh, we're going to give you a, you know, a new public library and a, and a whole ground floor retail market and bazaar. And we're going to you know, have affordable housing and all this stuff. And as the council began to say, yeah, we'll... That all sounds enticing. Those are good things for the community. And I began to say, well, we'll really get all that? Okay, well, maybe I can be convinced. Maybe we can all be convinced. Maybe this is a 9-0 victory. They pulled back all of the public benefits and said, I actually think we can get six votes without the public benefits. No library. The (laughs) bazaar kind of left the conversation. And now they're saying there will be affordable housing. It'll be more than you've seen in most projects. 20% affordable housing, which is great, but... You know, I don't want to live in an economy that's 20% affordable, no middle class, and 80% luxury. And that's right. what they're proposing. And so a bunch of people were ready to say yes, and a bunch of us are saying, that's great to get you know, dozens of units of affordable housing. What, what the heck uh, uh, happened to all of the other benefits we're talking about? And what is your long-term goal if every new project is going to be 80-20 and there's going to be no middle 
you know, A, no middle class, and B, 20% affordable isn't even enough. Is there some kind of other plan? Right. There's no other plan. There's the claim that if you don't do this, it's going to scuttle the project. The project is never going to be able to make money. They're barely scraping by as it is, and they can't even afford to give us the library or any of the other stuff that we had talked about, and that they had talked about. Right. And one final thing happened. We up we upzoned it, right? They, they won the vote 7-2, to two, strictly wow. along people who don't take campaign contributions from developer and people who do lines. Right. And then... Who is with you? Uh, uh, Councillor Carlone, who also doesn't yes. take special interest. Yeah. And now, if that vote were held today, it would be <laughs> six to three or, or five to four because there's two other people yeah. who don't take campaign contributions anymore. Jen, Jen has never taken them, and Mark has recently pledged not to take them, coming kind of across the aisle, if you will, on that issue yeah. um, to our block. But the, the, the thing that wrapped up, the thing that really showed me that those people were duplicitous and never had the community's best interests in mind it was not just that they didn't have a full set of community meetings and they never held those meetings on the community's terms, that they claimed that they were having these meetings, but they were always just to get sign off and then kind of disappear mm-hmm. into the dark of night. It was something more. It was that afterwards they chopped off a parcel of the land that they had just upzoned. And because they had zoned it so it could now go up to be a tower, mm-hmm. the land itself was worth the $34 million that they had paid for the whole project. And so they had just made all their investment back just through the lobbying. Before they had even built a single brick, they made all their money back. And And now they can build a tower that is more profitable than they had claimed before. Much more profitable than they had claimed before because all of the investment in land, which is a major cost in real estate development, Mm -hmm. had disappeared. And so you see how someone would hire very high-end lobbyists and would really push the votes on that. Because the minute you get the votes, right. you don't even have to do any work before right. you make your money back. Yeah. To use that to zone in to this housing issue, you said that 20% is not enough. Yeah. Um, the city of Cambridge formerly, well, was targeting... 15% effectively, I think it was about 11 and a half, 12%. We, we were at a level of 11.5% uh, prior yeah. to, to now. Effective, yeah. uh, if you uh, have a total project with 100 right. units, you would get 12 units of affordable housing. Right. It was an incentive program. Yeah. You, you want to build more, you're going to have to build more affordable. Right. So um, then I know sometime last year, um, the city manager at the time, Richard Rossi, um, picked up on, on the, what was it, the Cambridge Inclusionary Zoning Study, and then he aimed to move it up to 17 to 20%. You're saying that's still not enough. It, what is the mechanism for increasing the proportion of housing that is affordable, um, particularly mixed-use housing, and um, you know how, how has your work on that gone over your term on the city council? Sure. Well, there's a lot of mechanisms that we can use that we're kind of lifting up subsidy from, from the bottom. You have a commercial... Um, retail project, you want to have some subsidized retail. Right? Right. We're beginning to start that conversation. You, you want to do a, a luxury project, you're going to have some um, subsidized affordable housing. There are federal and state programs for affordable housing. There are mechanisms by which nonprofit developers get tax credits and other and for-profit, right. frankly, developers. You can make a bunch of money making affordable housing. So there's all these mechanisms to make affordable housing for those who are in very specific income classes, 60 to 80 percent of area median income, and that's a pretty high wage. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's still that's still pretty high. Yeah. There's uh, federal programs that are lower. There's Section 8 vouchers that you can mm-hmm. use. There's mobile vouchers. There's there's RAD programs. There's all kinds of programs. Now, these aren't enough, as we've said. Mm-hmm. Right? We're not allaying the, the problem. And, and they're not enough for two reasons. One is we're not helping 
a diverse set of people. If you want to draw a bell curve of where we should be, there should be a large middle class, there should be a, a certain number of people who are well below median income who we help, and we have understood as a society that if we want a diverse uh, population, if you want your um, you know, waiter to live next to your manager to live next to your dishwasher and that all to get to work on time mm -hmm. and, and all have fair access to the same schools, you're going to need you know, people who uh, of all socioeconomic incomes who live in a place and you're going to have to subsidize a, a lot more housing. Right. And we just don't subsidize enough. It's just not working. But, but the main thing that's, that's really, really hurting in addition to the lack of affordable housing is the complete lack of conversation on middle income housing that you can be a graduate student and not be able to literally live in the, the city where your university is, how you're right. gonna go to school. But you could also be you know, uh, the major bread earner, uh, you know, a, a woman in management or a, or, or a young man in, um, even in tech, and you can be bringing in the median income. You can be earning almost $100,000 a year for your family of four or five people, mm -hmm. and you can literally not afford to live in Cambridge, and yet people are trying anyway. They right. need to live near work. They need to get that job. They need to keep trying. They need to right. do their best. And so people are living in debt or people are paying half of their income. I pay almost half of my income right. just to live in this city, right. just to find whatever unit I can hold on to. And then maybe I can, you know, rent a space and make some of that income back. Maybe, yeah. you know, if I can do an Airbnb or if I can rent a room at a reasonable rate. But it's not like the person I'm renting to has any easier job paying me to sublet that that extra room, they're having trouble making rent every month too. Right. So um, th there is an issue in our housing economy where the federal government has not picked up the slack. And if they did, I would be spending that money at a local business or investing in the stock market or whatever it is right. that reduces the federal government's burden in, in increasing economic growth. And the state government isn't investing because we've got a bunch of Democrats running around lowering taxes and cutting services and helping rich people, um, to be totally honest. And, and they do a lot of great work in the state legislature, but they don't do a lot of great work on taxes. Right. And they don't do a, a lot of great work on housing. They yeah. could do much better. Um, and we got a Republican governor, which is just bonkers to have in Massachusetts, and and, and people yeah, are, it, it keeps happening though. I mean, keeps if you happening. go back to the from the nineties. Yeah, Weld and Weld. You know, people pattern. like Weld. I, you know, I, you know, we could have we could have won this thing for a Democrat by fifty thousand votes, and we haven't been working on minority or millennial voting and participation. Right, so there's right. just a lot of things that we could do that are all highly inter interconnected. But to wind up this housing discussion, let me give you a scale, a sense of the scale of the problem. We say in Cambridge that, that, you know, and this might be a little exaggerated, but a new affordable housing unit, given the cost of land, might cost as much as three hundred to $500,000 per unit. Let's say it's 500000 to build. We have a, a budget of about half a billion dollars a year. So if we just closed all the schools, closed all the police stations, fired all the city employees, sent everyone home and had no government, just took the tax money and put it all into affordable housing, we'd be able to make 1,000 units a year. And after 10 or 15 years of doing that, we would still have not satisfied the local, let alone the regional need for affordable and middle income housing. After 15 years of having no government and putting every tax dollar into affordable housing, we would be barely scratching the surface of the economic consequences of people not being able to afford to live here, the people today who live here not being able to afford to live here. And, and that doesn't even, as I said, uh, uh, 
begin to look at all the people who want to live in Boston, or all the people who have been forced out of greater Boston, I'm talking about Cambridge now, but yeah. out of greater Boston into the suburbs, where the housing prices are increasing there too, due to speculation and investment and luxury development and a whole host of other things. So yeah. my, my claim is this, while we have been saying that we need to increase the supply of housing in order to release the pressure on demand, right? It's a simple supply-demand argument. While the lobbyists who love to talk about affordable housing say, build it now, right? They're, they're kind of simultaneously saying, support affordable housing, but you're also supporting luxury housing. Build it now and increase the supply. What we have lost track of is that we're only building a supply of luxury, and we're building a very thin, tiny, fragile slice of affordable housing. And the build it now argument has given us a lot of options if you want to get something that's out of your price range and almost no options and increased competition, increased, not decreased competition, if you want middle income or moderate income housing. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we have actually, every time a lobbyist or every time, sometimes even a nonprofit, comes to the lectern and speaks a public comment and says the words, hashtag build it now or hashtag YIMBY, yes in my backyard, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. antithetical to not in my backyard, <laughs> yeah. they are forgetting that when we build luxury projects, we make the problem worse we give people more luxury options. We displace neighbors who are now living next to a luxury building and can't afford their rent because their non-luxury landlord right. is starting to charge luxury prices for just being near that area. Yeah. So we have exacerbated the cost of living for everyone in a big circle that now includes the immediate suburbs of greater Boston right. in, every, in every direction, including some of the traditionally poorest and most diverse communities in this city that we could have picked up economically, right. that we've now displaced and, and obliterated. Um, and and I'm, I'm making the claim that we have complete control over what type of housing we make, what type of regulation we have, and even to a great extent, if we want to fund this at the state or federal level, how we accrue funding to solve this problem so it doesn't keep going downhill. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry we didn't get to housing until the very end just because, okay. you know, it's... You got it's, my whole message. Yeah, your whole <laughs> message is there. I mean, that honestly could have been the whole the whole interview. But um, the last thing I want to pick up on is Jetpack. We talked about your political style early on. But then, you know, coming towards the end of your term in city council, your second term, self-imposed term limit, you're going to walk away for now uh, from the council, from the actual body, but you're not walking away from the community and you're not walking away from political activism. Um, can you explain Jetpack, what it is, uh, the impetus for it? Yeah. Um, Jetpack is Justice Education Technology Policy Advocacy Center. That's why we just say Jetpack. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the idea of Justice Education Technology is... Uh, we know what's right in our communities. We know it's wrong when someone you know, makes their $34 million back after reducing public impacts. We know that people want to be involved in their community process. This is a reference to the earlier real estate conversation. Right. We know, when, um, you know when, when communities are disenfranchised, you walk around and you say, who's visiting you from the city? And you visit 200 people and people say, oh, no one's visiting me from the city. I live in a black neighborhood. You know, and people will make those comments. Very mm -hmm. blasé, very direct. I live in an immigrant community. No one's going to visit me. No one's going to give me a conversation on after school opportunities. I have to go I have to go and do that research and kind of drag that information out on my yeah. own when I have the time. When I have the time between my three jobs, for example, if you're an immigrant family working hard in the wrench towers as I often find. So, um, we know we we need extra engagement. 
And we know the Democratic Party, just to, to speak about my partisan activities for a second, we know the Democratic Party could win in tons of different races if millennials or minorities were just participating. So we also know there's an education aspect. And we know that technology has been used on the right, both to subvert elections and to hack things, but we also know technology can be used to, to connect people. And so what Jetpack is, is on one side, uh, we have a 501c3, it's a nonprofit that trains people to run for office and to think about justice in their communities, to actually find altruists, not just whoever wants to see their face plastered on 5,000 yard signs, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have a disease almost to run for office and say, yeah, I want to see my face everywhere. No, we want to find the people. I felt this way when I was running. I was like, I'm going to now have to put my face on all these things. Okay, I'll suck it up. We want to find the people who aren't psyched about doing that yeah and uh, and then want to uh, learn how to public speak or want to learn how to drive the marketing but they're really speaking from an interest in in a community solution right mm-hmm. so we are training those folks to go on to be community organizers we've trained folks to get jobs as administrators and interns and uh, resilience uh, workers and outreach workers uh, in government not elected officials we've, we've seen many of the folks we've trained go on to run for office some win some lose we've only been doing this for about a year and it's been great just showing up is is so much of the battle and really finding great candidates is so much of the battle and and as a 501c3 we can train them to be great and to have great instincts and to mobilize their community but we don't we don't actually participate in them running for office the nonprofit is not allowed to be partisan is not allowed to engage with candidates so those candidates just take all that they've learned and then they they ask themselves do I want to run as an altruist and do I want to use community engagement in order to be the most authentic type of candidate the candidate who has hundreds or thousands of people who are already engaged in this work, this right. work of paying attention and caring as a neighborhood. Right. That's great. And, and we focus you know, on folks who care about the local and state level, which, the, the, you know, which I believe um, yeah, has become less popular in the American political ecosystem and, and is much needed. Right. On the other side, I'm now starting the PAC, and, and there's a similarly named PAC. I don't really believe in dark money or super PAC, so I'm not going to run around depositing money in candidates' accounts. I'm not going to run around getting, you know, certainly we're not going to get foreign contributions or anything like that. We're not going to get big, dark money from scary special interests. We're going to go around to individuals who have been disconnected from the political system. We're going to say, do you want to put efficient money into a, into a, a race? Well, there's ways you can do that. We can replicate some of the best um, organic and grassroots systems as a pack. We don't have to go out and do... $10 million of TV advertisements and say such and such, you know, you know the voice uh, on those advertisements. Yeah, yeah. Governor Baker yeah. was guilty of reducing this thing and gaining that thing and gaming <laughs> yeah. this thing. Vote no on three this yeah. November. Right? No, we're not going to go out there and spend $10 million and, and pretend that we're reaching disengaged and disenfranchised voters through television and through this shock jock right. garbage. We're going to go out um, and actually engage individual contributions in a process of reaching people at the doorstep. We're going to reach voters in Milwaukee, and we're going to reach voters in Boston, and we're going to reach voters in Texas. And we're going to say, from the PAC side, um, there are consequential races in your neighborhood, and we want to encourage you to be involved in these races. We want to influence these races towards transparency and towards participation. And that's going to be good for the more altruistic candidates that we are trying to... You can't help a, a candidate directly, right, from yeah. a PAC, but you can 
help them from afar. Yeah. And so we want to be influencing races where we find someone. Maybe they haven't found us, right? They don't know about us, but we want to find the people who are who are running for the right reasons. Where where we want to find Muslim candidates, underrepresented minorities. Right. We want to find um, uh, women candidates who who are underrepresented in elected office, and we want to find consequential races sometimes that are being won by fifty or a hundred votes. And we want to come in and say, if there was just more participation, there would be better candidates, there would be better outcomes, and there would be more altruism in the process. And shouldn't a PAC be raising two or three million dollars in order to get on the ground and make sure that that's a reality in person, and make sure that's a reality in digital communications, and make sure that's a reality in our national level storytelling? Shouldn't that actually be the norm for a PAC or any other organization that wants to do right by people? Right, but fund. J- just to to clarify on the issue, yeah. if you're not fund- funding the you know the commercials with that voice, yeah, what do you what are you funding for these candidates? That's, you know, that's so interesting that you ask that. I, so I feel that it is clear what one can do with a pack if they're not doing the commercials. But I think it's so foreign for people to imagine a pack doing what I think we will be doing right. that it's almost impossible to conceive of. So tell me if this sounds crazy. Yeah, the pack wants to raise money to meet voters on the ground, one by one. And we actually want to drive greater participation in races where sometimes the turnout is only 1,000 people. In, in the hotly contested special election for New York State Assembly, there was a, an election that was won by 1,500 votes. That's a hotly contested one. And, and you can make a, a Republican district blue, or, a, or frankly, you can do it the other way around, yeah. for under $100,000. So shouldn't PACs be spending money on making these races more transparent and more engaged rather than million-dollar commercials that go nationwide on like, a federal issue or a Senate candidate? Right. And that's my claim. My claim is that we should be meeting people at the doorstep. We should be meeting people through social media messaging yeah. and just engaging people in a local or, or a friend-based or an issue-based conversation online. Yeah. Um, and that you can drive people to do that. You can pay outreach engineers, but you can also, um, more importantly, actually just get people excited about taking an interest. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, you can do the marketing, but I wouldn't put it in TV. We have, we have an, an ad um, section to our pack, but they're not making TV ads. They're making things you can share online, and they're not with a scary voice. They're with an inspiring message. You yeah. have to get involved for the reasons that we've talked about this hour. I know we're running out of time or we're out of time. So I just want to say like the best conversations I've had on the podcast. This inspires more questions than it does answers. But uh, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Pleasure. We'll do it again sometimes. Hey, podcast listeners. This is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast again. I just wanted to say thanks for listening to that episode, and I wanted to extend one more thanks to Nadeem Mazin. Now, I'm not sure how you're listening to this podcast. You might be on our website, theucommonthread.com, or you could have searched us on the iTunes store under The Common Thread Podcast. Either way, we think you should subscribe to our podcast because we are coming out with a lot more awesome content this semester. One thing we did this summer was take a trip down to Washington, D.C., where we created nine episodes that will be coming out in a series later this semester. We also did a series on public health, which we're going to continue to produce content for here in Boston before we release it later in the semester. 
Apart from these special series, you can expect to get weekly content that we're going to be producing right here in Boston on all sorts of local and other issues. So please subscribe to the Common Thread podcast by going to bucommonthread.com and subscribing for email notifications or iTunes so you can get notifications on your phone. We'll look forward to speaking with you again. And until the next time, we will keep looking for the Common Thread.